Welcome to The Effective Lawyer, a podcast for ambitious attorneys who want to improve their practice. My name is Jack Zenda, and I'll be your host. Today, we're going to talk about handling premises liability cases. These can be some of the most complicated and difficult cases to handle, not only because they can be difficult to win, but also they can be difficult to even decide if you should take the case or not. And to help me discuss that, I have with us one of our top trawlers at the firm, Jason Aldridge. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jack. It's great to be here. Thanks, man. Well, before we get started, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about the types of cases you've handled involving premises liability cases? Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, I've had quite a few uh, premises liability cases and some that I'm very proud of. Um, uh, we've had customers in a popular lumber store, um, or more, maybe a hardware store is a better description, that uh, suffered a permanent lifelong injury um, while shopping there. I've had um, a, a client that lived at a um, retirement community and suffered, a, again, a pretty catastrophic injury on the grounds there. Um, those are the two biggest ones that kind of encompass all of the elements that you're going to run into in a premises case. Well, and I think you generally break these down into a few different categories. You know, you have ones that happen at a store, you know, like a customer. Uh, then you might have one that happens uh, on somewhere that someone is traveling. So if you have someone going through a construction site or going through uh, a walkway, somewhere where they're traveling from one place to the next, and then I still consider these premises liability cases, but they're really active negligence cases. And that's where something falls on someone, hits something one, or some sort of malfunction causes an injury on a piece of property. Or adjacent to even. So, right. So we've recently had, or I, I'm aware of one recently where the injury took place adjacent a construction site, but because of elements leaving the construction site. Um, but yeah, that's a great point. We uh, one Another one I didn't even think of was uh, something falling on someone in a uh, in an establishment. Well, I know when I first started practicing, I made the mistake of taking every premises liability case that called me, and that was a huge, huge mistake. I realized very quickly that you're going to have uh, you know five to ten percent, maybe even lower. I think last time I calculated it was three percent of our firm of an acceptance rate, and that's of cases we look at ninety seven percent we do not take. Um, well, let's start at the beginning. Maybe you could walk through uh, the elements on the liability side that you're typically trying to prove, and we could talk about how to investigate a case to establish that. Yeah. So you want to look at what happened, how it happened, um, and then what happened because it happened. Um, so, for example, you have to figure out what the person who was injured was, what their relationship was to the property, right? So there's different... Uh, levels that you will be considered uh, invitee, licensee, trespasser. And depending on which one you are, um, that will dictate what level of duty is owed to you. Um, everybody's heard the story that, you know, the trespasser, the burglar breaks in and cuts himself on a kitchen knife, right? That's a trespasser. Um, and then in law school, there's the famous one with the shotgun that's all rigged up to, to shoot out the door. Um, but that's what you got to figure out first is what were they doing there? Um, and then second, what was the what was the mechanism mechanism of injury? So you have slip and falls or trip and falls, um, and they're not the same thing, right? Slip and fall is like a liquid type 
you know, you slipped on something. And trip usually is you'd fall over um, something that's left out. And then, of course, there's the third category, which is the catch-all. You know, did a ceiling fan fall on your head? Did product fall off of a shelf? Um, Something sticking out that you tripped over, right? And then you have to figure out um, the you got to go a little deeper. Like with a car crash, someone runs a red light and they hit you. That's kind of the end of the facts. But in a premises case, um, it, take, for example, if I was walking through a, a grocery store and the person in front of me spilled their drink and I slipped on that drink, that's a terrible thing that happened to me. It's not my fault. But to make it or to figure out if the store had a role in it, um, you have to know how long, what kind of time tr- passed between the event and the injury. And did the store, could the store reasonably have discovered it and cured it um and oftentimes you know it's a you're dealing with an educated animal right they have surveillance they've been sued they have procedures um maybe if there was as many procedures to keep the people safe we'd have a tougher time but there are a lot of procedures keeping them safe from us um, helping our clients well and, and so you know when a client comes in the door one of the things i think about is trying to get a clear understanding of what the client's story is from their point of view. And I like to use a method that I call setting the scene, where I'll do a frame-by-frame frame with the client uh, a little bit of time before the incident happened, to the incident, and then after the incident. And some of the questions that we'll ask are, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? What did you smell? Who else was there? And you try to bring them back to the place to have them look around to see if they can understand all of the different pieces of evidence and different things that they experienced at the time that the incident occurred. Well, let's talk about, so someone calls you up, they say, I've been hurt, um, and it's a case like this. Let's start at the beginning. How do you decide if you're even going to sign up the case? What are some of the things you look for? Well, you'd want, what we look for at our firm is to make sure that we're going to add value, that we're going to help the person. So, Unfortunately, the level of injury comes into play in that determination, right? If it's if it's a very minor injury, what it's going to take to win will not leave them better off. And so that's often a hard conversation to have. Um, but you've got to be able to do that because otherwise you're, like you were saying in the beginning, where you're taking everything. I well, mean, you just can't. Like you said, a serious injury, right? So right. you need a serious injury in a case. And I think that's something that I would pay close attention to is do you think you could just based on the injury itself, go get a big verdict. And then the next is, is is what you will need to prove it, does it exist? Um, if somebody's in a store with no surveillance and there was no other customers, right, then you're just, it's going to be your person's word. Is there going to be anything else? Um, and, you know, when you think of a car crash, you were talking about the list of questions that we ask. Um, there are so many other defenses that get thrown at a premises person. What shoes were you wearing? How fast were you going? What what things did you have in your hands? Um, you know, and a key role in my one of my bigger ones was um, we used a human factor expert to talk about the signage in a store and how that there are literally books after books and studies about merchandising and the design of the store is to lift the person's eyes up. Um, and so they, they, there was surveillance and they said, well, your guy's looking up. He's not looking where he's going. And it was only because we consulted an expert that could explain to a jury that they're looking where they're supposed to be looking. So a human factors expert, that's an interesting expert. And I know, you know, I've used those in several cases and they can be really helpful for establishing 
what it was designed and how it would affect the human experience. So if you want to think about it this way, there's ways that a store or a piece of property can be set up that will promote safety in, ones, in ways that won't. And there's best practices. And so a human factors expert can really help you understand what a human would experience. Like what would they see? What would they hear? What would you expect them to see? What would you expect them to do in that circumstance? And we've used those to a lot of success in a lot of our cases. Yeah, and then they can also add to it what the elements, what the store is doing uh, to affect that human experience. Like I, like I was saying in my case with the signs, drawing your eye up with the end caps um, that are designed specifically with larger products and where they're placed um, and that sort of balance between safety and affecting the shopping experience. It was really fascinating. So someone comes in, you want to first... Uh, Establish that the case is large enough to pursue. Uh, the next piece of the puzzle, I think, is, you know, based on just what the client's telling you, do you think you have a strong liability case? Uh, because once you get into the case, you may realize the case is not as strong as you thought. So I think figuring out the whole 360 point of view from what the client experienced. Now, I think it's really important that you set expectations correctly with a potential client and explain that these are very difficult cases to win. You don't want them leaving your office thinking that any premises liability case is a slam dunk because there's not. Even if you have a great liability case, there's going to be a percentage of jurors that are going to uh, pour you out just because they're going to think that wouldn't have happened to me. You should have watched where you're going. So they're always a little bit of a crapshoot on what's going to happen at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, we focus group our cases, and I was really blown away by the first few premises focus cases. I actually had uh, a member of our focus group who's who worked in a grocery store and whose job it was to clear aisles. And he was the worst one on my mock jury, just had no... Uh, no sympathy whatsoever for um, people not seeing the things that are there to be seen. Um, so you'd be really surprised that uh, I would have seen it or watch where you're going, I think, is a 40 percent. You got to count on that reduction. Um, and you were saying about keeping the expectations. Something I found interesting is that a lot of people are really altruistic and they want um, that's been their main motivation is why well, I want this to not happen to someone else. And sometimes that's the harsh reality you have to tell them is that this is going to be insurance companies. The store is not going to change what they do necessarily. Um, you know, it's even difficult to talk about cases because almost always there's a, um, a confidentiality clause and you've got to tell them, hey, look, the store's not going to come to this case and they're not going to be part of it. Um, but usually, like I said, like, you know, like we pursued if they're really hurt, this is a life-changing thing in all likelihood. I always, and the other thing I like to look for in, you know, and I kind of rank these cases, ones where something that clearly should not have happened happens. Uh, we had a case where a uh, piece of furniture fell from the ceiling and hit our client in the head while they were standing there making a cell phone call. That shouldn't happen. Uh, that's a good liability case because no one expects that to occur. Um, a leak from a air conditioner. That can be a pretty good case because it shouldn't be leaking. Where you get a little more difficult and a little more tenuous are cases where it's not clear where the substance came from or it's something that everyone is aware of. And that kind of brings me to another uh, practice tip that I would give you when you are deciding if you're going to take one of these cases. Make sure that you believe in the case and you're willing to go try the case. You don't necessarily have to feel that way in the beginning. I think really the first 90 days, you're really evaluating that case. But 
I think once you've evaluated it, you need to be prepared to go the distance. These are not cases that typically settle early in litigation or settle with a demand letter. For sure. I, I, in my first one, I remember being really frustrated at how long it was two years and almost 20 depositions. Um, and you know, you could get a, a, a big car crash case or a trucking case that settles in half the time for twice as much. But there's something pretty satisfying about um, going up against a big company who did something terrible and pushing them until they tap out. No, I completely agree. Uh, And I think that brings up another point is when you're litigating the case, you may have to take more than a couple of depositions to establish the facts. I would also look for prior employees or existing employees. I think those are great fact witnesses for your case. They're not going to be as well coached or well prepared, especially if you're dealing with a big box store or something like that. And we've got some of our best evidence. We had a case recently where the store employee said, yes, I've been warning them about this issue for months. They won't do anything about it. That uh, that object is a hazard. She literally used the term. It's a hazard, which is great if you're going to play that before a jury. Now, if I if we had you know stopped short and not taken that witness's deposition, just done the corporate rep, we would have never gotten that evidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the key depositions in in my bigger case was the um, was that I would have seen it or watched where you're going. Uh, the the particular thing that my client was injured on was brightly colored. Um, And of course, when you look at a photograph of it, it's it. You're looking at it. It's plain as day. But I had footage from eight or nine hours of the store being open. And I interviewed every employee that walked past this hazard. And they have a rule. You don't leave the hazard out. And so I would ask them, did you see it and not care? Or did you not see it? And they all didn't see it, which cut hugely against the company's assertion that my guy should have seen it. Um, because none of theirs did. And you uh, that didn't come until way into the depots. I love that question because uh, they were probably assuming that was the wrong, that was the right answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, all right, so we're talking about the investigation stage. The client hires your firm. We're starting to investigate the case. Let's start off by asking, you know, what experts might you hire early in the case, uh, if any? Have you hired any experts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, It may depend on what, so I'll just list the ones I've hired. We've hired an expert on, um, on really on store safety, uh, literally wrote the, some of the books on mat usage and on wet floors, on, um, the friction coefficient of, of stores on merchandising and marketing, um, store setup. Um, I've hired an engineer, a couple of different times for sidewalks or you know um, anything that's outside that's problematic. So let's kind of get into the nuts and bolts and some of the tactics. Let's start with tracking down witnesses. Okay, so what are some of the experiences you have with tracking down witnesses and some of the tactics you've seen be effective? So if you take a typical store as a setting, um, you're going to find some of the witnesses through discovery who was working that day, who was working that week. Um, You'll find out some of the witnesses in depositions when you walk through it. Um, I took stills from video. Um, We had gotten the video from the day, the moment the store opened until an hour after my client was injured. And as each uh, employee went by, I took a still from it. And in the depositions, I asked them to identify each person. Um, 
There are companies that will professionally find former employees. Some of the best witnesses come from that group of people. Uh, they're not currently employed, so they're not afraid of revealing things that would be beneficial to your case. Sometimes they're eager to. <laughs> Sometimes they're quite eager to. Um, you want to think outside the company, too. If you think about, um, let's say, for example, it's a major hardware store. And think of who delivers to that store. Like um, I've had clients that were injured on two by fours um, that fell or boxes that came from a high shelf. Um, you might want to think about who would be stocking those shelves or delivering because sometimes they'll give you pretty good information. Yeah, we deliver all the time to this place and they never have the right stuff or they never do the right thing. I had a client injured on a fire extinguisher and we went to... Uh, I, as a great witness, was the fire inspector. Um, ironically, the company held the tag out to say, look, it was inspected, so therefore we couldn't have done anything wrong. But it was quite the converse, in fact. When I spoke with the inspector, they, they revealed that they had on multiple occasions warned the entity about the dangerous condition. So you want to think, of course, with the employees, but then former employees and um, companies that may have interacted. Well, you had a really interesting case recently involving uh, someone who was hurt very badly at a um, facility and you were able to track down a ton of witnesses through uh, open records requests. Yeah, so we went. Our uh, we have an excellent um, investigative team, and we requested all nine one one calls to this uh, facility or this address. For you had to narrow the scope some, so we put falls, um, and we got twenty different nine one one calls for falls. Um, we've also, of course, gone door to door, asked people that live there. Uh, yeah. And I think that's something important to keep in mind. Uh, one thing you're looking for in these cases is to establish a pattern of conduct. And, you know, you want to make it seem like it's a movie where there was all these warning signs of this terrible thing that was going to happen. And then the inevitable occurred. Uh, we're firm believers that the case does not begin at the incident. It begins way before the incident happened. Another area that you can look for witnesses is going to be on the um, the timesheets, you know, both digital and physical of the workers. And I am not sure if this is an intentional tactic or unintentional, but I've been amazed by how many companies still use physical paper to like monitor checking in and checking out of employees. So getting that list, and I think you want to try to jump on it early because People disappear, especially if in their low uh, wage positions, there may be better opportunities available or they may be transitory in nature. And if you don't jump on it fast, they may not be around for when you need them for trial. Yeah, and reviews as well. In that same case you mentioned, I had done a bunch of research on social media and found um, some scathing reviews on their Facebook page and um, reached out to those people. Um, in one instance, the person had complained on the Facebook page of the company and had put photos of oh, that's great. A, a tree that had fallen across a walkway and flooding and leaking. And, and they were, you know, they were listing all the complaints that they had made and almost made my whole case for me on just the Facebook page of their own Facebook page. When I remember the 911 tapes that you found, just playing those at mediation of all of the, the people complaining about the exact same issue that occurred, it made it much more difficult for them to go to the, you know, oh, stuff happens defense, which I find is like the typical right. defense they go to. Um, let's talk about video footage for a second. Uh, what 
you know, how valuable is video footage? Where do you find it? How do you go about making sure they hang on to it? Yeah. So I think that also will grab major mistakes or things that people do wrong. Um, in one of my first cases, I was slow to go to the property itself and inspect it. And that was a lesson that uh, I didn't repeat that mistake. But you want to get there right away. You want to spoliate. You want to send notice so that they preserve it. And you want to see it because if it's good for your case, uh, they'll try not to show you, but you want to see it. If it's bad for your case, of course, they'll show you. And if it's neutral or if they view it as negative, but it really isn't, um, most of the time, in my experience, the video is not as good as you would hope. So it doesn't really make or break your case in most instances. But if it's there, you want to see it and you want to see it fast and you want to see the store because no matter what kind of um, description you get or even a photo, there's nothing that can replace being in that position. Um, we hired, I hired a private investigator once to go and take photos of the five uh, other stores for this national chain um, and to specifically look for violations of the specific rule that caused my client's injuries. And so when they said, hey, look, we are we, we care about safety and this was a one-off, I was able to show them five other stores where it was not a one-off. And in fact, it was common. I had gotten into the habit during that case, which lasted quite a while. Every time I drove past one of these stores, when I was going to do depositions or anything, I would stop and go in and take my own pictures. Um, so the video is huge, but going to the scene is is big. I find once you do this line of work for a while, your your mind changes. Have you ever seen the movie Terminator? Mm-hmm. You know, when the robot's walking around and it zones in on certain issues, I feel like that's what I do for rule violations. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's a violation. That's a, it drives my wife crazy. Yeah. Um, but I see, I see the danger everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember where I was recently, but I was eating and I was like, hey, you guys are going to want to do something. Oh, and I was also walking around my neighborhood. We were going to talk about manholes. There was a manhole that was ill-fitted and I thought, you're going to find out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a funny, well, not a funny story, but an interesting story about video footage we had a one of the very first cases I worked on was a premises liability case against a very large uh, grocery to- store chain, and our client was hurt very badly, had a fractured femur. It happened early in the morning, hardly any witnesses, and uh, we were trying to get the video footage. And they said, "Well, there's no video footage of this," which didn't make sense to me because this happened at the entrance of the store and. For those of you who don't know, stores have cameras in places to prevent theft. That's the objective of the cameras. So entrance and exits is one of the most common places they're going to have a camera. So we in this particular store had a reputation of not disclosing video footage in litigation that actually existed. Uh, so we press for it. They say it doesn't exist. Well, we say we want to go inspect the store. And sure enough, there's a camera pointing right at it. And they say, well, it wasn't on at the time. So we file a further motion to compel to actually go to the place where they store the video with an expert. And they say, no way in heck, the judge grants our order. We go there and sure enough, there was video, it was recorded and it was present. And now, of course, is, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we missed it. I'm so sorry. That's terrible. And this case happened to be like two months from the statute of limitations. So we play the video footage and we're in litigation. And it turns out a third party vendor had waxed the floor right before our client fell. And I think the defense was planning on 
making them an RTP after the statute ran to sink our case. Um, but, you know, luckily we were aggressive and we were able to get that footage and it all worked out. So just some, you know, tips don't necessarily take, there's no footage for an answer because I'm with Jason. They will gladly share footage when it's bad for you. And if they say there's no footage and they won't share it, assume it's good for you. Yeah. And the other thing is if there is footage, you can get it even without a lawsuit. Worst case, you know, you do a pre-suit deposition, but you'll get the video. Um, And the other thing is the first um, site inspection I did for a premises case, um, a senior attorney, a mentor of mine, advised me to go into the back of this restaurant where they have the monitors. Because if they they had said, well, there's no footage that captured this part of the store. This is with a court order. This is not on his own. (laughs) (laughs) This was absolutely in litigation. Uh, And so we went in the back and I could see the monitors. And sure enough, there was a monitor that covered that area, which means there was a camera that covered that area. uh, For sure. Yeah, you don't want to take their word for it. You know, some interesting cases we've worked on. We've worked on a couple drowning death cases, which I consider premises liability cases. And... um, you know, in those, the rules become particularly important. And I kind of think of all of these involving, you know, drowning or fire or someone falls in something or trips on them as kind of the same premises liability bucket of looking for what is wrong with the facility or the area at which the person was harmed. And I think when you're looking at the more catastrophic, you know, a death case, those sorts of things, you really want to make sure you're checking off every box on what you're looking at in those instances. In the the drowning case, it was a, a real tragic case where someone drowned in a home of all places. And it took a long time for us to really figure out what the liability on the case was. Uh, but it had to do with egress and ingress, having enough space and room to get in and out of the place. And I remember us doing three different inspections with three different experts because we we're trying to figure out what went wrong here because someone shouldn't drown in their own home. Yeah. And if you think about it, the theme, the common theme in all premises cases um, is money over safety, right? Or, or money over profits over people or whatever the theme is, because it's always a corner cut and it's almost always a for-profit entity that's cutting that corner at the, you know, at the peril of our clients. Well, you know, and when you're in litigation, I think one mistake attorneys make is being afraid to take a lot of depositions. I think we get it in our heads that a deposition has to be six hours long. A deposition can be 15 minutes. I remember we've had cases, I think there was some that you had like this, Jason, where, you know, we said, okay, we're going to take these 10 employees depositions. If you're going to tell us what they know, and we'll just line them up. What do you know? Nothing. Next. What do you know? Nothing. Next. And then the third one, boom, you get a lot of good evidence on them. Yeah. You you cannot in advance know who's going to be your best depo. Uh, the biggest, the best depo I had in one of the cases we've talked about today was a depo that they prompted. The other side did. They brought a witness who turned out to, to be incredible for my case. And another one, which we've also discussed, it was a fourth or fifth or sixth employee uh, in one day. That was the break uh, point, I think, in the case. You know, and I wouldn't be afraid of doing that early in your case because a lot of times the defense won't have prepped them as much because they don't know where you're going with it. And just a few good excerpts of, yeah, I saw that coming uh, can really make a big difference in the outcome. Um, 
you know, what are some of the key depositions that you want to always take in a, in a premises liability case? And let's just use the example of a, a trip and fall or, you know, what people traditionally think of as a premises liability case. Yeah. So you start, I think, at the incident itself and you work outwards in a circle. So if you've got a wet floor, um, then you want to start with the employee that caused the floor to be wet. Um, then you go up the chain from there. Who was their supervisor? Who was the person that hired them and trained them? Um, and then potentially you'd go up to a corporate uh, person who's in charge of safety overall. Um, because in all likelihood, there's either a rule that they had that they broke or they don't have a rule that they should have. Um, but if you start at the point that's common sense, but how far back you go. And sometimes you want to really consider the order as well. You may not always want to start with the guy or girl that was mopping. You may want to start higher than that um, because it gives them a chance to make their bed and then lie in it Um, because it's going to be somebody's fault. Floors get wet and they shouldn't. Well, um, you know, what are some of the cases that you've worked on or types of cases where there's maybe a heightened standard of, of duty where like the premise would have more responsibility than they would ordinarily. This podcast is presented by Zinda Law Group, a nationwide personal injury firm. For over 10 years, the experienced lawyers at ZLG have been partnering with outside counsel across the United States on all types of personal injury and wrongful death cases. With over 30 attorneys, Zinda Law Group has paid out millions in referral and joint venture fees since 2015. To learn more about partnering with Zinda Law Group, please email us at referrals at zindalaw.com. We'll schedule a time for you to meet with Jack Zinda or one of our trial lawyers to discuss your case. So, for example, one of my cases involved a senior community. And that honestly was the theme. You couldn't have you couldn't have pushed that theme out of the way. I mean, it was so omnipresent. The focus group thought so. Our firm did. I did. The family did. Because this company had profited off of senior citizens and specifically targeted to them. Um, and so some of the dep- depositions we took or in every deposition we took of a resident, we asked them, what were you looking for in this age-restricted community? Um, and it was just this long, this perfect list of heightened safety. You know, you expected handrails, you expected safer conditions. Um, and of course, in my case, they found the opposite. Well, and, you know, I think you did a great job in that case of comparing and contrasting other facilities the company owned because they had... This is a larger company and they had three different types of facilities. One was for, you know, senior living. The other was for high end and the other was for middle income. And the high end ones, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they had like every safety thing you can imagine. It was like perfect handrails everywhere. They had handrails that led to the handrails. And in the senior community, they had wobbly sidewalks and no handrails and old faded paint. Yeah. They had directed their resources, just like we said, the theme to the most profitable property. And if, and another tip is get the marketing materials. If it's a premises facility where someone's living, a lot of times they'll have these amazing pictures and like how safe it is and how great it is. And then you compare it to reality and it makes a great exhibit. Here's what you marketed when you wanted their business. And here's what it actually looked like when our client was hurt. Yeah. And look at everything. The the lease in that case was informative. Um, You know, when you talk about getting at something earlier, we had a case where uh, a light fixture fell 
that's so obvious, right? Light fixtures should not fall. And when they do, it's someone's fault. But if you get into more sophisticated business entities, you may find four, five, six, seven different people touched that thing. Um, and it, it takes a lot of work to get them all involved in a lawsuit. So what about cases you, you want to avoid? Like, what are some of the things when you look at a case like, okay, I don't want to take a case like this or, you know, a damage threshold. What are cases you want to avoid? Because these can be, you know, money pits and time traps if you're not careful. Yeah, unfortunately, it comes, you know, there's a there's a misconception about personal injury attorneys um, and this idea that a case may not be, quote unquote, big enough. Um, for us, the, the, the anticipated result, what a win looks like has to be factored in in a premises case because you are going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money on the case. Um, that one of the ones we talked about today, we spent $50,000 on experts and depositions. Um, and that's money that's fronted. So if a win is $75,000, if we think that's what a jury would award, then it's not, you're not helping that person by, by winning that case. Um, so oftentimes the injury uh, is, informative, um, and then your ability to, to prove the case. So unfortunately, you know, if two cars crash in the middle of the night on a road and no one sees it, that's one thing. Um, you're maybe not going to gamble as much, but on these kind of cases, you could, you could really front load and, um, and, and you don't want the jury deciding whose fault it is just how much. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And what I try to think about is what's the story that you're going to tell, that shows this was a disruption, what people would expect. Um, typically, the more something is close to, you know, water on the ground and someone slipped, the less likely it's going to be a strong case. The cases I like to look for are ones where, say, an air conditioning unit has been leaking for days and someone falls. I like to think of what's the abnormal and does this match up with something someone didn't expect. We had a case where a really nice woman was walking on a sidewalk, carrying some boxes. She was working as a delivery worker uh, or delivery driver. And there was literally a big piece of the sidewalk missing with rebar in that they hadn't finished constructing. Um, and you could look at that case and say, well, she should have looked where she's going and not fallen in this obvious hole. But it's at a mall where people are walking with boxes. That was her job. They told her to come deliver here. And when you start breaking it down, that should never be that way in a million years. It should be marked off. There should be tape, something to warn someone not to hit. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of the cases where it's, you know, slipped on a, a grape or wet water because those are really difficult to establish should they have known. And then I think you always have to have a consideration. The jury in those cases might say, yeah, but, you know, that's not that dangerous. Right. The jury is going to put themselves in both parties' feet. So if it's reasonable for a grape to fall to the floor in the grape section, you're in trouble because it is. If it's reasonable that the floor is wet after you mop it, that's reasonable. But if it, it's not reasonable for an air conditioner to leak day after day after day in a store um, or any of the other examples, you know, a, a manhole not fitting, a, a light fixture falling from the ceiling, et cetera. Um, so it's sort of a balancing scale, right? The more egregious the activity is, the easier it is to get behind it. Or conversely, the more terrible the injury is, uh, you know, then you can maybe find your way there. And I think you've got to really um, map out your liability case. I think this is the type of case, especially I encourage you to put the charge out from day one. So you establish, okay, are they licensee, uh, 
a trespasser, an invitee, and really figure that out. I don't, can I tell you how many attorneys get into litigation? They don't know what the classification of, of their injured party was, which really can make a huge difference in the outcome. Yeah. One of the things that we do here um, is we will actually draft our response to the motion for summary judgment that, of course, hasn't been filed because you haven't even filed a lawsuit yet. But um, if you don't know what their motion for summary judgment is going to be, you are already losing. Um, they do. And they're setting it up in all the early depositions. And even if you've if they've got a real flimsy argument, if you're not, if you haven't already defeated it, uh, you're going to get to mediation and find out that their adjuster believes that they're going to win that summary judgment. Um, it will delay, if not destroy your case, if you're not ready for it. And we do that right out the gate. No, I completely agree 110%. You know, the other thing that can be really helpful is to do a focus group. And you don't have to do a dedicated focus group just to your case. A lot of times we will double and triple up focus groups and say, let's carve out five minutes to give the facts of a difficult case that we're considering pursuing and see what they think. You know, um, ask friends or family. I've got a few friends that are particularly, uh, I wouldn't say they're anti plaintiff, but they would be not be people on one of my jury and they will give me honest feedback. And I always tell them a friend of mine has this case. Don't tell them it's your case because they, they will not be honest with you. They'll say, Oh, it's, oh, it's an amazing case. My dad, for example, I don't think I've ever had a case he didn't love that w- wasn't worth $10 million, you know, because I'm the best trialer ever and I could get it. <laughs> um, but get their advice of what they think of the case. And there's been several cases I've walked away from when I do that five times. There's like, no, that's not a good case at all. Yeah. And you want, you know, you, you said the term and you may not have coined it, but you don't want to win the focus group. And so find people that will beat up your case because it will give you insight to the areas that are wrong just as readily as the good areas. And ask them, what, what do you want to know? The folks, what else would you like to know? I think that was really helpful in the senior living facility case and getting that information. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jason, this has been an awesome discussion. I could geek out on this stuff for like 10 more hours, but I know you're a busy guy. You've got a family. You've got cases to work on. If the listeners wanted to get a hold of you, how could they do that? Well, on our website, I'm listed, obviously, one of the attorneys, and my email and phone number's there. Call me at the firm anytime. Um, You find me. I will respond and help any way I can. Well, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Effective Lawyer. You can learn more about our team and find other episodes of our podcast at zindalaw.com. As always, we'd appreciate that you subscribe, rate, and review the pod. Thanks.